0: back to the Health Tech Fitting Podcast, where we break down the health tech news every single week. And this week, I am joined by, of course, producer Adama and my colleague Hugh and the great Dr. Don Pimenta, CEO of Tortoise. So welcome to you all. How are you all doing?
1: Yeah, yeah, really good. It's so funny that you said the great and I was like in my head inserting loads of defamatory words after that, you know, the great anyway, can't, nothing we can say on the <laughs> podcast. Um, <laughs> I'm also quite disinhibited. I woke up at 1am and it's now 3pm. So it's been a long day for me and it's like having jet lag without traveling anywhere. So I don't know what that is. Maybe it's like a founder's problem. But yeah, good. This might be exciting. And obviously feel free to edit most of what I say out.
2: This is going to be great, Dom
1: yeah why why 1am it's actually a really interesting problem that i found especially things that got busier for tortoise is that i am not spending enough time decompressing and i think we've all done this right super busy jobs you go straight to sleep you just like your brain just carries on at work while you're asleep and then you wake up with exactly the same thought processes and it's really i've just found it really hard to then actually just like quiet the brain down I think last time I was on, we were talking about some machine to do this. And I was like, joking. Oh, what a stupid idea. And then last night I found myself looking for it. Like, what was that machine that electrifies your brain? Like, I could really do with that now. I can see, you know, can see the value in it. Well, that was the thing that we talked about,
2: right? I didn't make that up. It was, yeah. Those like weird pulses to make you go to sleep.
1: Yeah. Where's that gone? Some lightning in the brain or whatever it was. So yeah, one of those would be great if you got one lying around.
0: Well, we don't, but someone in our audience might. So if you do, get in touch. Dom would love love to be a case study for you.
1: Yeah, yeah, I actually would. I would fully try that now.
0: Well, I think let's get into our first story, which conveniently is all about tortoise and two fantastic announcements that you've had this week, Dom. So first of all, congratulations. But to share the news with the rest of the Health Tech Pigeon listeners... This week you've been very, very busy announcing a raise. So you've raised some money. Not a small task. So congratulations on that one. And also you've announced a really interesting and important, I think, partnership with Gosh. So why don't you tell us about it?
1: Yeah, definitely. So um, we announced our raise. And I find it very odd, and people say congratulations. Because uh, as a CEO, obviously, you know, it is, it is, it's super useful, right? And we have, because an amazing investor, they're amazing partners to us. Um, but it's a little bit like when you first have your baby, was like, oh, congratulations, you've got a baby. But when you have like a one-year-old, if someone says, oh, congratulations, like that's a weird thing to say, right? Because it's like, you know, it's a lot of work and it's crying all the time and it's like pooing everywhere and I know this because I've got those kids. I'm not saying anything bad about it. I just like it's it, it's interesting because every time you go through this process, yeah, the headaches magnify. And it's a nice actually it's a nice way of thinking about it because it's also very grounding. Like you literally someone says, Oh, you should go out and celebrate the race. And I was like, No, we will not celebrate anything. We will go and build things and we will celebrate when we've cured the elimination of error in medicine or whatever we're working on. We raised um four point two million from Cosler. It's it's a bit of a historic race, there's a bit of a lag and There's a reason for that. And then we also announced our partnership with Great Ormond Street formally. And there's a whole bunch of really nice stuff coming out of there, some of the studies that we've been doing. So we've been working there for about six months. It's one of the world's best children's hospitals. It's also one of the most most digitally mature hospitals. So it's been a really great uh, place to learn and and to work with a team, um, deploying what we think is like the first generative AI uh, sort of in this in this in this space, I guess, clinicians assistant in the NHS, certainly, at scale and in a very sort of controlled and and measured way. So we've been building through a bunch of phases with them. We did a phase one study where essentially just built a clinical sandbox and had some clinicians look at it, working uh, and now completed a phase two study with simulated patients from real doctors, studied that, output that, see what they like, and then and then move forward now to the next gate, which is phase three. And that's going live in the next quarter to essentially study this in the real world. A clinician's assistant that essentially listens to a conversation, makes your notes, makes your letters for you. That's where we're starting. But the long-term goal is to see, you know, if you had two of you in clinic and one of you was an electronic version that was an AI and had access to a whole bunch of other tools, how much more helpful would that be? What, what impact would that have on the clinician and the, and the patient? Um, and, yeah, it's been – actually, there has been really – an amazing partnership. And one of the really surprising things was that everyone's like, oh, you know, NHS, really hard to work with. Quite quite the opposite, actually. Quite the opposite. Really encouraging. And sometimes being in conversations that, Gosh and be like, oh yeah, we maybe we can do this. And I was like, mm, maybe, maybe I, I become the cynic then. I'm like, maybe we should just try to do this thing. And then and it's really nice to like have people drive you. You know, this is very hard sometimes as a founder to like constantly be like, oh, here's the vision, here's the vision. So it's really nice actually for someone for them to take it on in such a, you know, really take it on in that sense. Um, But yeah, it's been great. So super excited to see what we do next with them as well.
0: Awesome. Well, you know, I'm very glad for all of our Pigeon listeners that we are back on our generative AI hype. It is one of our favorite topics to talk about. Um, And I think this in particular is is quite interesting because obviously you were saying there that it, it's, you know, an assistant for clinicians, it allows them to focus on consultations with patients. And I think that's a, it sounds like a really basic thing, doesn't it? That doctors are going to be able to talk to patients. It's like breaking news, doing the thing that they joined medicine to do. And it, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be such a incredible phenomenon that we're actually enabling clinicians to do the job that they set out to do. It's unfortunate that, you know, the situation we're in where we where we do need that. But it, I think from that perspective, it is, you know, really has the opportunity to be really transformational in the environment that we we find ourselves in. And I think, you know, it's also worth saying that in the conversations we've had, you, you, you have such a focus on how do we do this in a really safe way? And a clinically led way where clinicians feel comfortable. And, you know, we we like to skirt controversy um, on, on the podcast and interrogate technology for sure to make sure that, you know, we're not just getting carried away with a hype. But how are you how are you kind of approaching that at a tortoise to actually bring it to clinicians in a way that you're confident in, as a clinician yourself, but in a way that Builds that trust with them as well, and they feel confident to use it?
1: Yeah, it's a super good question. I think, I mean, some of the hard work's been done for us in many ways on that last point about confidence. Because even a year ago, you showed people this type of technology, they be like, What is this? Who's writing this? Where, where are they sitting? Are they behind the computer? You know, and then a year on after people have been using ChatGPT and they really kind of understand or get started to get a handle. Or, on these type of technologies. I think that's been actually very, very useful just in the general trend of things. Um, and then interestingly now finding, you know, doctors saying, oh, I've been using this for ages, it's like ChatGPT or something. It's like, well, actually you've not been doing it in a compliant or safe way. So I think what's been really useful and actually working through with GOSH is like there are existing frameworks for clinical safety in healthcare. So we have the DCB-129, DCB-160 system. Um, and that feeds into something called DTEC, which is the NHS standard for certification. And actually, you can follow that pretty well, like you look at the risks. I'm a clinical safety officer, so I've done this before with lots of other software systems. look at the risks, think about what could happen clinically, who has responsibility, write that all down, mitigate, and then pass those risks to the to the clinician. And then what we've done with gosh, is we've emulated the only system that we could find that was in any way analogous really to how you should use new technologies, which was the pharma system, which is that phase one, phase two, phase three gate, minimize risk, maximize exploration, increase the risk as you de-risk actually the actual uh, safety of the product. And then the other really interesting thing that we've been doing, and you know, if there's uh, lots of clinicians do listen to this podcast, we built a platform. Uh, so our agent uh, that we've decided to call it OSLA, which is an acronym, stands for Operating System Leverage and Electronic Records. We've now built another platform, which is another acronym. It's called CRIOLA. And CREOLA stands for, I'm going to get this wrong now, Clinical Research of AI and Large Language Models, and of Large Language Model AI, I should say. And it's named after CREOLA Catherine Johnson. So, CREOLA Catherine Johnson, for those who don't know, uh, was one of the human computers at NASA uh, in the 60s. Um, and they didn't have computers, so she did all the uh, calculations for the Apollo moon landings by hand. And we thought that was a really good uh, analogy for what we're trying to do, which is like, take this very complicated technology do something very useful, but also safely. And that actually requires clinicians to look at the outputs, to validate them, to measure, so we can constantly improve our systems. And we couldn't find an equivalent of what we're now calling clinical Turk anywhere actually in the world. So it was an interesting thing to set up. And now we have about 90 to 100 clinicians engaged in that platform. Every time we make changes to either the speech text model, the large language model, the outputs, the prompts, anything like that, we run it through a bunch of ground truth data, and then we have clinicians revalidate that, that there's no hallucinations, or we're minimizing hallucinations and minimizing emissions. But again, we looked at the literature, and we thought, there's no framework to do this. Like, what is an important hallucination in the clinical setting? What is an important error in a speech-sex model in a clinical setting? These are questions which didn't actually have answers. So we've sort of created internal systems, the major and minor criteria, and that's how we're iterating against that. But it was really interesting because a year ago, again, no one even knew to ask these questions. And now the second question after, like, does it work, is what is your accuracy? What is your hallucination rate? What is the emission rate? How do you evidence that? And that's what we are now presenting to hospitals and be working with GOSH to build that evidence data um, and now keep probably push that a lot further and think about publishing some of that or even doing something a bit more clever with that. And again, it's it's nice in a way because you kind of have to make this up. But it's, it's exactly how you would probably take any technology clinically. From thought to the clinic is sort of this, this is a very step by step, very evaluative process. Um, and you know, other companies are doing this, and we're learning all the time from from colleagues as well. So, yeah, super interesting process and very much a work in progress. But yeah, let's see how we get on. I guess.
2: So is this a model you're going to be able to do, like? Other AI companies could take could take forward, could look at um, doing what you're doing now, and or is it kind of uh, confined to that? speech-to-text um, scribe for uh, clinicians' piece
1: There's lots of ways of validating the models. Um, the models that we use right now are a speech-to-text model and a large language model to uh, you know listen to a consultation, create notes and letters. There's also a bunch of other use cases within that, so uh, can you validate codes? Can you validate summaries created by the models? The problem that we found initially was a, generative AI is a very sort of esoteric technology. It behaves in a way that's not particularly predictable. Therefore, you have to create a super rigid structure for evaluation around it, and that isn't obvious at all. And we iterated this a whole bunch of times over the last year, and basically realized that the only way to really do this properly is by hand, at least to start with. There are companies out there that are trying to do sort of evaluation of technologies uh, using AI itself, but then, then you have the situation where AI essentially is validating AI and you, you then need to validate your, you know, validating AI. You know, who watches the watchmen is a similar problem. So at some point you have to go to ground truth and ground truth in this particular arena is clinicians. So what we decided to do over the last six months, and, and we have a sort of dedicated team building this, we built a platform that we call Creola. What we're trying to do is take a super powerful technology, landing it on the moon, but in a safe way, and realizing actually at this point in time, the automation guardrails and things, they're not fit for purpose, and we have to go back to basics. So Criola is a platform, about 90 to 100 physicians are on there at the moment. Um, If you're a physician and you're interested, you can go to criola.tortoise.ai and actually start signing up and doing some of the work yourself labeling transcription accuracy, labeling hallucinations and emissions for any output change that we make, any model change that we make. And then what we'll do with all that data is we'll build it all up um, into clinical evaluation. We may then use the data set to create some automations and we can maybe do some of this validation live. But I think you know, any company should really be thinking, especially in this space, how am I creating a safety case? How and what am I doing Clinically safe, and how am I going to evidence that? Not just to your customers, which you absolutely need to do, and I think we've also found that building trust at this stage is really, really, really important uh, for that zero to one moment for AI in healthcare, but also eventually to the regulators. And I, I, you know, the regulatory market's moving quite fast, and we definitely have to get ahead of that curve, uh, and even in many respects, just like do what is right at the moment without any sort of frameworks, and that seems to be having clinicians hand validate everything that we do. Um, And that will continue long into the future. And who knows, maybe we'll be start evaluating other forms of AI or even other companies' AI could plug into that system. And there's lots of aspirations in that respect.
0: In terms of how the platform works, am I right in thinking that obviously you have your assistant, which is listening, it's recording the notes and, and making recommendations, but then a clinician will still validate that before there's any additional action taken?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, actually what we're shipping at the moment, and it's live in a bunch of primary care, is is very simple. And this is also now we're talking about this product. listens to your consultation and makes a note. You edit the note. You put that in your EHR. Makes the letter for you. You edit it as if it went to a secretary, but it comes back. But the bit that I think isn't obvious in that workflow that you'd otherwise normally have to do is the composition piece. Even if you dictated it, right? Actually, this is capturing the conversation and turning it into your notes and your letters does not take any actions at the moment, but we're certainly going that way in the next six months to give the ability to pick out orders, do codes, do diagnosis, and then file those back into the system. And then again, all of that has to be validated by a clinician before it goes back into the system. In the same way that, you know, if you sat with a junior doctor in clinic or a scribe as they have in other countries like in the US that you would look over their shoulder and take responsibility for their output. It's exactly, it's exactly analogous to that. And I think it's a really interesting question. Would we ever even want to go into what we'd call autonomous action um, as a space? And I think probably the answer at least for, you know, where we are today with the robustness of the models and the general sort of unsurety of the technology, probably not. Um, And probably not for quite some time. And and the other thing is you can, like we actually have done the math and we reckon if you look at how doctors use computers today, which is like 50 to 60% of their time doing non-clinical work, like not the bit that they wanted to be doctors for, or even any clinician to be honest, um, and nurses actually do a lot more paperwork proportionally than, than physicians do anyway, we could probably can knock that down to about less than 15%. So you go from 40% patient time to 85% patient time, it's like double the amount of time that you spent with patients. And I think that's probably an easy goal to start with. And then if you really want to automate things without checks, then maybe you could go down that route. And there are maybe other places to start with that. But I think if you just want to unlock the time, then by definition, that's a sort of what we'd call an attended function, as in if it's literally in front of somebody so you can give them the time back. And, you know, we don't need to get into the to the issues of doing things autonomously. I don't really have any ambition to do that, at least not for some time.
2: Uh, I mean, we spent a lot of time last year on this podcast chatting about generative AI and you know, there was the inevitable uh, dismissive, oh, well, you know, we're never going to see it having a major difference in healthcare this half of the decade. It'll be towards 2030 and beyond where we start seeing it. Uh, obviously, we were very wrong. You know, is, is that, that de-risking piece by pushing it over to the... pushing that risk over to the clinician, is that something... We can. Is that the the key? Is that the route in for generative AI and yeah you know, other other types of deployment of te- uh, the, you know technology? Yeah, you know, we. Is it going to be quicker than, a lot quicker than we think? Yeah, I think the last question, we're
1: definitely going to accelerate the use of general in healthcare faster than we initially thought. I think two things on that. First of all, it's a technology that's moving exponentially. So by its very definition, it's going to move faster than we initially thought. And we saw the same thing with COVID. You know, human beings like to think very linearly. You know, you see your you know, your mammoth running A to B. And you know that if you throw your point at C, you'll hit the mammoth and you'll eat dinner. And that's essentially how our brains are lined up at the moment. We look at events, create linear images of the future. But what we saw with COVID and what we're seeing again with AI is human beings are really bad at thinking exponentially. So, you know, you see your mammoth move from A to B and suddenly on top of that mountain, that doesn't make sense to us. But the technology is actually moving that fast. You know, in the last year, We've seen GPT-2, GPT-3, GPT-3.5, GPT-4, now GPT-4.5 or turbo, whatever you want to call it. Performances have 10, 50 times. Cost has dropped by 100 times maybe over the course of the last year. So we are seeing an exponential moment in healthcare. And regardless of else what happens in terms of adoption, you know, the technology by its very nature will be faster than we think um, and predict. So be very wary of anyone predicting the future here. I think you have to start somewhere. And I think that's a really important point. Like when you're starting with a technology that saves physicians time, one of the very useful qualities of that is that the physician is sitting there and their their time is being saved. It's what we call attended automation or uh, the actual actions are under the auspices of a doctor. And the other thing that's really good about that is it fits into an existing cognitive workflow. So if you look at, you know, the four forces of change for adoption, which are push, pull, habits, and anxiety, what we're looking here is the push is massive, the pain point is very real. The pull is that the technology is getting so good, but the habits are very interesting because you think you know, working alongside AI is in fact a very unusual thing to do, and that habit is very, very hard to break, and therefore adoption is very difficult. But actually, if you abstract the fact that way that this is an AI, you've got somebody that's listening, and maybe I shouldn't anthropomorphize, but it's, it's good for this piece of uh, discussion, somebody that's listening, writing stuff down, and then you're checking their notes. And then usually that somebody is like a human scribe. In, in the Middle East, for example, it seems to be nurses doing that. In the UK, more often than not, it's the junior doctor doing that. But actually it fits into a cognitive workflow for that senior clinician. And therefore actually it does work very, very well. Um, and the more we lean into that, I think, um, as a sort of uh, commercial piece, building a much better user experience into something that doctors already know I think that's also super important. But at this stage, it's still very early doors to say whether this work can, you know, GPT-4 or any of the large language models can actually do anything autonomously. And I'm still very skeptical and I don't think we've built the evidence. So until that is the case, we will always keep a human in the loop. And I think the last point more is, it's very counterproductive to think that new technology should replace uh, our existing workforce. I think that's very uh, short-sighted when we need every person we can get, especially in this country. So augmenting them is way more purposeful, I would say, and much, much safer. Um, you know, if you could unlock 60% more time for the workforce we already have, that's an instant solution that will actually work tomorrow in the real world. Whereas trying to figure out how we can replace that workforce, that's a whole other can of worms, a whole other evidence. And to be honest, like, the medico-legal system, never mind anything else, is so far behind that I just can't see that happening in the next five to ten years. So, yeah, we'll get in there, start saving a bunch of time, and over time, see what that – explore what that physician-AI working relationship actually looks like, and then get into some medical device stuff with adding guidelines and diagnostic support and seeing what that augmentation looks like. And I, I really think that's the vision for the, for the near future, anyway.
0: I want to just touch on the race. And – some of the things that you learned going through that experience. So I know you, you said, obviously there was a bit of a lag, so it's not hyper recent. You didn't raise the money last week, but I, my question is, did you find that when you dangled the word generative AI, was that, did that get investors excited um, or did it put them off? Like, how, how did you find kind of pitching that to investors as, you know, one of the first movers in the space doing this, particularly over here in the UK?
1: So the prospect of AI, for sure, is is super exciting. And I think one of the things I really learn is what people never really ask about uh, VCs is what do they want? And like it's a very short-sighted view to think that VCs want money. I mean, a lot of them have a lot of money. like They don't really think about money in the way that you and I think about money. The other thing that people don't realize is a lot of venture capitalists, like the fund that they orchestrate, it also is not their money. So it's a very different way of thinking about money entirely. So actually, what do VCs want? Why do they do that particular job? And I think what I've become to realize, and I actually asked a whole bunch of them, this is, a, if anyone's doing a raise, I would highly recommend you do this. Every time you sit down with anyone new in front of the investor space, ask them who they are and why they do what they do. Because actually the answers were super interesting. And also, what do they look for, especially at that stage, when really you're just investing in the person across the table or the two people across the table from you? Because the idea might change, you know, the technical change, you have very little at seed stage. We're, we're a bit more advanced now, so the, the game slightly changed. But I think what I've realized is VCs really want to change the world. Um, That's what they get into venture capital for. The bet is money, for sure. But the bet is more about how did I envision a future? And a lot of VCs spend a lot, we don't, again, appreciate this, spend a lot of time thinking about the future, thinking about the space, thinking about even like what ideas they want to create. And because there are investors, uh, one of the investors wrote a piece about this only a couple of weeks ago, that actually they see themselves much more about Thinking about the future and finding their ideas, and then trying to pull them into reality. And I think trying to get on the level with P- with the really, really good VCs who pushed us way harder on the questions, much more skeptical, much more deeper into technology, because they were genuinely looking for something like, if I give you this money, this might become a real thing. And I think this thing is needed in the world, and that's how I make my impact, and that's the that's my sort of my purpose. And again, I think you know, on, a, on a sort of more macro level, the more I've learned about. Uh, any of this game is just all about people, whether it's the people you employ or your customers or your investors, you know, what do they want? Who are they? Where they are coming from? These are the actual questions that, you know, you should be asking yourself in any, in any human endeavor, but specifically in this one, which is all about, it's all about trust, really. It's all about trust and faith and what you think the future might be. And you know, you might be the person to to get there. So, and I think genuinely the people that really know about this technology and spend a lot of time thinking about it are super excited because I said this sort of podcast to James, I think, a while ago. I do genuinely think that this specific moment in time is going to be looked back at like more than the birth of the internet, simply because in large language models, specifically, but in lots of the AI technologies we're using now, the compute power that we have now as well, the data we have access to, we've unlocked something that is challenging us in a way in humanity in terms of its power, in terms of its implications that we've never really faced before, um, maybe with, you know, nuclear weapons and nuclear energy. It's a sim- I think it's a similar paradox. Huge amount of power, but we're already seeing, like, the flip side of this, right? Like, with the Biden fake phone call, really powerful AI technology emulating a real politician, having quite scary real-world implications. And the other side of that is, you know, there is transformative capability here to unlock human potential, to give humans time back to do really, like, interesting human things. I don't see, for example, layoffs, especially in healthcare, being actually at all going to happen. There's there's not enough people anyway. But what I do see happen is creating the system that actually now works for the population that we have by using AI technology in, in that space. I think, yeah, people are hugely excited. They're hugely excited about the value. They're hugely excited about the application. I think the bit that maybe people wasn't obvious and even not obvious to us last year is that the technology is moving so fast that it's almost, I wouldn't say it's commoditized, But the value here is maybe figuring out how to harness this lightning and then put it in the electricity plug (laughs) to to make that very mundane. And what I mean by that is like, you know, getting generative AI, which can do all these things, and constraining it to do one very specific thing that saves a lot of time in a very kind of menial way, like writing down a consultation into a nice note, is a very boring task for the power of the technology that's there. But actually, that's that's the hard bit constraining it, bringing the value in, building good product around that and making it compliant and safe. And so it's like, it's this is really interesting, the dichotomy that you really want to get hyped up about the tech, but you actually want to communicate the granular reality that the value will be derived by the company that figures out how to actually use this for something useful and not for like just generating pictures of, you know, cats riding rocket ships at random or something, but actually like, you know, helping human lives and uh, having real impact. Um, and I think again, to go back to Richard point, that's what VCs are most excited about—the leverage that this technology can do, can have to make impact where it really matters. I actually get a bit upset about hype uh, in AI because I do think that people are overhyping it in some areas. Definitely in healthcare, they've definitely overhyped AI for lots of different things. Diagnostics, for example, we can talk about all day long, but very much underhyped in some other areas. Where really, if you could, for example, if we're successful, unlock twice as much time for clinicians, you suddenly doubled the workforce. Now, what could you do with that? That's a way more interesting question um, than can we like find new molecules. Uh, oh, I don't know, actually, to be fair, they just discovered a new class of antibiotics, so maybe that is valid, whatever. But you can—I mean the impact on the boring side, I think, is going to be greater, and that's where we're sort of focusing for now. So, yeah, it's, I think it's hugely exciting in a, in a very weird
2: way. Nice uh, dismissal of both AI drug discovery and cats riding rocket ships there, Dom. Um, <laughs> my, my last question... Yeah on this is just what you're
1: going to do with the money. But yeah, I mean, we hired a, hired a great team. There's 12 of us. We're in Holborn. Uh, it's actually, quite a nice office. Um, it's Holborn Town Hall. And we've been basically building super robust product, which is the sort of delta between an idea. At seed stage, it's like just an idea on a laptop. And actually deploying this into hospitals. So two weeks ago, we actually officially launched in the UK, have a bunch of surgeries now using us live um, in the UK and also pushing through with the real-world study at GOSH, and then basically adding more capabilities. So today, it does documentation. Tomorrow, we're looking at doing the actions, so doing orders, prescriptions, doing stuff in the EHR directly. And then shortly uh, in mid-year, we're looking to then do summarization and finding information in systems. And that's basically all of the buckets that clinicians spend their time on computers. And it's about building the tech and, to be honest, building the team. You know, you have an idea, but then you have to go and find the people that are actually going to make that a reality and then you have to make them part of the team and we have i have to say like that's the bit that i've enjoyed the most Uh, it's been the hardest bit for sure but we use the money to go and hire people who can actually make this a reality and the people we have now are exceptional so that's been quite joyous super hard process but quite a joy
0: to move us on to our second story which is kind of related because you mentioned just now about doubling the time that clinicians had, which ultimately can double workforce. So I want you to hold that thought as we talk about story number two, which comes to us from Moby Health News. And the headline says... Healthcare executives are investing in digital health tech without seeing an ROI. So this story is from Jessica Hagen, and it's about a study that was commissioned by EY that shows that 71% of healthcare executives said hospital expenses have not decreased, even though they have digital health solutions integrated into their systems. Now, it's worth saying that this is a U.S survey and is very much focused around payers and providers in the US. I think they surveyed 101 people over there. And it's also not clear the timeline over which the investment has not been seen. But obviously, they're talking about the fact that they haven't seen that ROI, they haven't seen that cash saving. But what they have seen is that nine in 10 departments had more time for care that's huge but my question is then may do we think that maybe that that statistic that nine in ten departments that had more time for care is actually indicative of roi that roi that's coming further down the line because more time for care as you say means filling gaps where there's you know no resource perhaps and being able to see more patients Mm. is there going to be some kind of cost efficiencies in the longer term is it just that we're not waiting long enough what do you what do you reckon on this one
1: yeah that's a super this is a super good story because like as I, i mean i joke to start with i don't think this is actually news i mean i was at i can't remember where a conference a year or two ago And a CCIO, a very big uh, healthcare system in the U.S., and I mean like, you know, billions of dollars revenue big, like multiple hospitals, stood up and was like, what is the point of the EHR? We've spent like $5 billion on our implementation, and we haven't seen any ROI whatsoever. I thought it was a really interesting example of where, you know, had mass adoption of a technology, I mean, in the U.S., massively subsidized as well. And the point was all of this... You know, we can make care better, make X, Y, and Z digital care, better information, etc, etc. But the hard outcomes of what it was supposed to achieve, I don't necessarily think were ever defined. And I think we're just really bad. I think it's a really hard thing to do in healthcare in general, is to really demonstrate your return of investment. And obviously, you know, we think about it a lot of what we're doing, but I've seen some really good examples of where it just isn't obviously going to work. Because you really have to know... Even what's happening on the ground, you know, your decision maker in their ivory tower in a massive hospital system probably actually doesn't even know that what sounds like it's a good idea doesn't practically work. So a super good example is a company I was looking at a couple of years ago. I think they've actually pivoted to do something else now. But their initial uh, go to market was like, we're an AI company. If you're doing an ultrasound, it takes four minutes. We can reduce that down to like two minutes. So They save the ultrasonographer two minutes on their scan um, with some sort of better image acquisition technology or something, which sounds great, but the practicality of that is like, okay, you have 15-minute slots because the patient has to come down, they have to come with a porter, they have to sit outside, they have to be put on the bed. So by the time you factored in all of the other pieces of that actual workflow, Saving two minutes on the absolute scan time probably doesn't even add anything at all. You can't see any patients faster, you can't bring them down, you can't fit another patient into that slot. The reality is you just do a bit more chit chat. maybe you get a coffee break after the end of the day. And it doesn't, you don't see any ROI from that, from that intervention. Um, we've worked super hard at like trying to figure out how, how to do this. Um, and actually, I think with AI, especially in this context where it's a sort of workforce solution, even even small increments of time unlocked actually in big chunks does add very much to the system, but then you sort of have to factor in like is it possible to actually add that extra patient? If you get twenty five percent extra time, can you actually see ten percent more patients? As one example, or if the quality of the documentation is doubled, does that actually translate in the right way to capturing more cost? And I think these are the kind of things that we're trying to prove out right now. And it, yeah, it's exceptionally difficult. And I think I would say, like, just to that point as well, you know, they actually said in the study that, you know, the staff got more time with patients. Nine out of 10 reported that. And yet that didn't come to any measurable ROI. But there are lots of parts of the system that we're very bad at measuring. There are also parts of the system that we just don't want to measure. You know, we don't publish results of our SIs or mistakes or things that happen in the hospitals that hospitals really don't want to look at or don't want to pay attention to. But it may very well be that that extra patient time means less mistakes, not longer stays, um, and actually a much better outcome for the patient, we're just actually not measuring it. So yeah, I just think it's it's a super hard thing to measure. We're not very good at it in being accountable, like what are our actual KPIs. And actually if we could move to a much more evidence-based system, and we sort of stuck to that at Tortoise, make, looking at clinical trials as our way of bringing new features into clinic. Because we really do wanna A, demonstrate the ROI, but B, like if it isn't there, then it's very valuable for us to go and find out, okay, well, what do we need to fix to make sure it is there? Because once you have that value, then your sales cycle is, 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 is about you know, just solving the problem and it's not about who's got the best marketing team, which has always been a bit of a problem um, in health tech in general. Um, so I'd say, yeah, more data, think about it harder and um, maybe AI actually is a really interesting way of measuring the activity of what else is happening in the system much more consistently. But yeah, we could talk about that um, quite a lot.
2: My favourite takeaway from this was that clearly the people who aren't experiencing ROI or aren't seeing ROI over however long this this survey measured are less sceptical than you are perhaps of um, digital health <laughs> interventions because they say, yeah, we haven't seen ROI, but we're definitely going to do and spend more next year on it. So yeah, clearly there's clearly they're seeing some benefits and clearly they're seeing some value. And I guess it's, it's exactly as you say, we sort of have to redefine what what we define as ROI. You know, if you're, if you're saving time, if you're making um, the working experience for clinicians better and avoiding uh, that clinician leaving or burning out or taking time off, um, I, I I do wonder whether these ROI calculations cover the, the, the you know, the extra person that uh, that doesn't have to be, uh, have to cover a shift because someone um took the day off with stress, or the the extra hiring costs of bringing in um, someone when half the team leaves because they're working flat out every day for two years or something like that. And I feel like it's those digital health interventions and those impacts that we we do have to keep keep track on.
0: I think ROI in healthcare is so difficult to measure anyway because ultimately, as you as you both said there, something that you're implementing in one place might not necessarily have a return on investment in the traditional sense in that original place actually the impact can be felt in another part of the organization or even health system so you know something you implement in primary care could be felt you know in even in social care perhaps but the mechanisms aren't in place to be able to to measure that and even you know quantify that in any meaningful way much less join the dots to trace back where where that initiated, where that saving initiated, and I think you know I'm sure it's not unique to just the UK. You know the challenges we we face with that kind of fragmentation of the system, which makes it difficult to join the dots. It's, it sounds like it's you know pretty prevalent in the in the US as well, and I'm sure further afield. But I think that is one of the very difficult things about measuring ROI. ROI, not least that. A, how do you define it? It means different things to different people, but it shows up in different places in different ways. So it is just a minefield from from that perspective. Moving us on to our final big story of the week, which is another minefield in and of itself. Now, The BMJ has reported that the majority of data informing NICE treatment appraisals is of poor quality. And it goes even further to say that there have been no improvements in the quality of data in the last 20 years, with two out of three NICE appraisals having utilised data of poor quality. Now, again, I imagine this is not unique to the UK, you know, it's not just nice who is using health data to make decisions. We know that AI, for example, is only as good as the, the data it's trained upon. And you you know, you talked about earlier, Dom, some of the hallucinations and bias and all of that kind of thing, which can is directly traceable mm-hmm. back to, to quality of data. Um, I don't want to end on a negative, but this is this is a, a bit of a worry. What what's your take on, on this? As someone who is using data a lot in their work.
1: I mean, I was kind of surprised about this. I thought, you know, we were doing pretty good. I mean, NICE is actually a fantastic institution. If you look at how the drug advertising works in the US and Australia, like it creates a lot of bias in the systems. You know, there's whole movies now made about some of the super bad behavior. The opioid crisis, for example, is definitely uh, part of that is fueled by a lack of a singular body using data to make decisions on behalf of healthcare systems. Um, but in many respects, maybe I'm not surprised. Like, how do you actually categorize good data? I mean, it's a really interesting question for us, and we have this as an internal discussion around uh, AI. Like, what is our... And we had to, again, we had to make this stuff up, right? So, like, we have internal classifications for what good data is if we make a change to the model or we make a change to our prompts or the architecture. When we re-measure things, how many data points in AI is good? From a computer science perspective, you'd say it's a million data points or nothing. Uh, And from a clinical trial perspective, you might say, you know, 500 data points in a clinical trial, that's an amazing, really powerful study. So where and how do you make that decision-making? And what we ended up doing was sort of creating a system that says, okay, we'll just sort of uh, make a couple of thresholds. So we have a certain level of data where we say, okay, that's sufficient to make a soft decision where we can explore more. Then we'll have a hard level of data we we'll say, okay, that's the number of data points we need to make a hard product decision. And then there's also, which we haven't even reached yet, but a much higher goal where we we'll say, okay, that's something publishable that we should share externally because this is something that we've discovered about this technology. And again, investing in a system at least makes us iterable. It might not even be, you know, the right system and we'll definitely have to iterate as we go. Um, but you also have to understand, like, it takes a super long time to get this data, it's very, very hard to get, especially for things like you know medical device territory. Some of the things like hip replacements, for example, there was the whole uh, metal on metal issue. That's a sort of complication that takes five to 10 years to even happen. So how do you measure that and how do you capture that data and how do you report back? And those systems are really hard. I guess we don't necessarily have that problem in such a a sort of lightning technology as AI because everything happens very quickly. Um, But if you're not data-driven, especially in this space, then I think you're you're kind of lost, really. And I think to go to my earlier point, like I do, as a colliery of using AI as a regular sort of digital worker in healthcare... I think a lot of the way that we collect this kind of data will be much, much richer. And therefore, we may find that, you know, for you know, phase four monitoring of drugs, for example, just collecting that data is much easier. Getting those adverse events happens much quicker. And then actually, we can boost the quality of our live data in, in a much more consistent way. Um, and I think the last point is that it's any startup you know, I think it was any healthcare system really, but specifically in startups. I think Paul Graham said a startup is a exercise in de-risking uncertainty. And the way that you do that is you basically uh, go milestone by milestone. What do we know? What have we de-risked so far? And how have we evidenced Like, What are we standing on? What is our database? What is our data-driven approach to get here and to get there? And then that tells you a little bit about where you double down and where you invest your time. Um and like, I'm sure there's other ways of running startups, I guess, you know, from a farmer background and a medical background, like just kind of operating at least on this side of things. And Chris is the same as a scientist based on the science and the numbers. And it's a super objective way to make decisions. Sometimes you have to make instinctual jumps for sure. But I think in healthcare, that's not necessarily, you just, you just need to prove it out. And that's part of the reason why we're Tortoise, you know, go slow and click the evidence properly. But I think, again, in healthcare AI, the last point I'll make on this is if you don't have a whole lot of data that drives what you do, and when you get into the medical device realm, you know, ISO 27001 and um, Class One Medical Device Certification, you do have to be constantly collecting data because you have to prove that what you're doing is correct and going in the right direction. And then I think that's you know in massive uncertainty, that is the only way to, to navigate really. So yeah, we need more data. I think AI will actually help us get more data as well as drive. Uh, innovation much faster. Um, and then I guess to wrap all of that up much faster than any of us think will happen. Um, and hopefully we'll, we'll go in the right way.
0: I think we can close off for the week. It's been a incredibly insightful conversation. While well, Dom is off raising however many trillions of pounds he needs to um, validate a new data set. You're also hiring, aren't you? So why don't you tell us a little bit about that, because I am pretty sure there are some people in our network who would be very keen to get stuck into generative AI and healthcare. So tell us about the role.
1: So we actually have two roles, actually. Um, we have a full-stack engineer role at the moment, um, sort of three plus years of experience, mid-level, doing some really interesting stuff. Again, a lot of stuff that, you know, figuring out how to tie up applications with back-end, with AI technology is really interesting. I think maybe the listenership might be more interested in the fellowship that we have. So we have a study that's coming up. It's multi-site. It's a very large study uh, in eight different hospitals, and we're looking for basically clinicians to help us run it. Um, it's a fellowship will be based basically over here in the, in the tortoise office, uh, running uh, actual clinical world study of ambient AI technology in uh in in real clinics so like actual application but also on the back end doing a bunch of uh, some of the eval work and and learning about the ai models and learning out you know how we work together as sprints and uh, releases and all the bits that aren't obvious actually for clinicians who especially who want to get into tech um sort of pitch to anyone really who's done more than two years of experience uh, and definitely looking for people who've done like what did i call it science grind that's what we're looking for because I, I think it, what's really interesting is like the human reinforcement work is really boring like you have to be really really didactic about it really like careful on how you label the data um, and it's the same thing when you collect the data for the robustness of this study. So I was thinking, I was like, I used to do cell culture uh, uh, a long time ago as a degree, and I, I remember doing like a, a week long experiment, and I dropped the whole thing on the floor on the sixth day, and I had to start again. So I want people who've experienced that pain. That's what I'm looking for: uh, people who are suffering internally with this, you know, need for science. Um, and the job adverts out now. It's a it's sort of an expression of interest at the moment, but we'll be recruiting quite uh, soon. Um, so yeah, get in touch.
0: Awesome. Well, if you too have had an existential scientific crisis, then this could be the role (laughs) for you. Get in touch with Dom. But thank you, Dom, Hugh and Adama for this week's conversation. It's been for sure an experience, a journey of AI, data and ROI and tune in next week for some more conversation, debate and the down low on health tech. Thank you so much, Dom, and see you all next week.